Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former firefighter, elite volleyball player, and one of the fittest women on planet Earth, Carly Wopat. Now, this is an incredible conversation because Carly has a unique lens, especially when it comes to the role of the elite athlete transitioning into the first responder profession and getting an objective view on whether our environment allows us to thrive or causes us to fail. So we discuss a host of topics from her early life and journey into athletics, losing her twin sister, Samantha, to suicide, navigating her own grief how volleyball took her around the world as an athlete, her transition into the fire service during COVID, which was a very unique conversation, how she made the bold choice to navigate back out, realizing it was detrimental to her performance, obstacle course racing, sandlot jacks, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, please take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Carly Wopat. Enjoy. Well, Carly, I want to start by saying, firstly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. The backstory of how I first came across you is actually Sandlot Jacks two years ago. So we'll get into that. But I watched you and some of the other athletes, male and female. I think you weren't even competing. You were just practicing to compete. And I was, you know, amazed by the athleticism. So uh, here we are, I guess, just over a year later, and, and we're having this conversation. So I want to thank you first for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, James. I'm excited to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Right now, I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, I'm actually in the house I was raised in. Um I currently live in Redondo Beach, which is south of here, but I like to come up to Santa Barbara every once in a while and visit my family. One of my brothers still lives here as well, too. He works for Santa Barbara County Fire Department. Uh, both of my parents are retired, living their best lives. Um, but it's beautiful here, and it's really easy for me to actually do a lot of the training I'm currently doing in Santa Barbara. So I like to come up here for the mountains the ocean, uh, and just a little reset, but I'm flying to Pennsylvania tomorrow for a competition. Brilliant. Well, we'll get into the, the gamut of sports and athletic endeavors that you participate in, but let's start at the very beginning of your journey then. So, um, you, you said you, were you born in this area? You grew up in the house? I was born in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, we moved to this house when I was three years old. Okay. So, Pretty much all my memories are here. And your parents are retired. What were the professions they were doing when you were growing up? They were both math teachers. Uh, my mom was a 
math teacher at the high school I ended up going to, Dos Pueblos High School in Goleta. And my dad was a math professor at Santa Barbara City College. So we uh, were definitely um, taught, I guess, really good study habits. And I remember them going over my math homework and we'd have to redo problems that we didn't show our work for correctly. (laughs) So it was, it was uh, definitely a blessing though, growing up with parents who were teachers. Um, They instilled really good habits, work ethic, and they were good teachers. So and I missed the the question about siblings. You mentioned one um, brother now is a firefighter. Um, talk to me about your other siblings when you were growing up. So two little brothers, uh, Jackson, he is two years younger than me. So he's 28 and he's the firefighter for Santa Barbara County. Uh, we're very similar in a lot of ways, also very different, but we both are passionate about firefighting and we have another personality for it. And then Eli is two years younger than him. He's 26 and he lives in San Francisco. He went to Stanford like I did. Uh, We also have a lot of similarities, but (laughs) um, in other facets, uh, we're kind of nerdy. And he ended up becoming a software engineer. So he sits at a desk all day and writes code, which is insane to me because he's 6'6 and like, 220 pounds and a built guy he would be if you saw him you'd be like oh he'd be a good firefighter too we always joke about when he's going to get into the service but um and then I actually I was born with a twin sister Samantha and she passed when we were 19 years old uh, at Stanford um she was struggling with some mental health uh and yeah, it was a hard time. But. Well, I want to get to that because, I mean, that's, you know, sadly such a frequent event. In fact, I was literally doing the research for, you know, us talking today. And I was like, okay, you know, Carly's this firefighter. I've watched her as an athlete. You know, we're going to have this conversation about volleyball and all these things. And then I get into your actual story and I'm like, here we go again. And people look at this podcast and go, oh, yeah, you have a mental health podcast. I don't have a mental health podcast. It's just that every single person that I have on the show, there are mental health stories, loss of, you know, loved ones, partners, family members, maybe not lost, maybe they grew up around addiction, but this is the human experience. And um, I think it's maddening, you know, with so many distractions and the, the kind of the mainstream screens that the mental health conversation is kind of washed away this it's lost in the white noise but every single human being they may not be struggling themselves they may be fortunate but all of us know people that have been you know afflicted by it and some of them that we've lost so i think it's it's ironic that this you know was never supposed to be a mental health specific podcast but this is what it's like being in the western world in 2023 yeah well i think in general the human experience is so full of ups and downs And we all tend to broadcast the highs of it, but everybody experiences lows. We just don't talk about it enough. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll definitely get to Samantha, you know, when we get to that point. But going back to, you know, all of you when you were young, you've got 
two parents that are math teachers, there's, for example, when it comes to math, the common core math conversation now with these parents all scratching their heads going, I don't even know, you know, how to teach this to my child anymore. Have you had conversations with your parents about education and their perspective of, you know, if it's improved, if it's devolved in, you know, in their time and beyond? Oh, gosh. Uh, a little bit. They talk about how generally generationally it's a lot more challenging to teach students i think because there's so many more distractions tech with technology like cell phones um and then kids are just changing uh my my mom and dad both still tutor so there's a lot of high school students that come to the house um i'll meet them on occasion when i am here and yeah, it's just, it's a different world, which presents different struggles, I think, for for kids, uh, learning-wise. And um, I think a, bi- a big part of it is distraction. Learning how to focus and I think the self-mastery of understanding your own brain and how it works, that just takes a lot of self-awareness and time to develop. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty much me on my soapbox. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about learning styles? You had these, you know, these different siblings. Um, it seems to me, and I know within myself, I am terrible at math. I really am. Um, but when it came to the fire service and there was the the medical math, you know, and, and the paramedic side and then the engineer math and, you know, and the pump panel it made sense to me. You you put a real world solution all of a sudden. Okay, this kind of stuff I get. But when we start getting into you know um, numbers, yeah, just 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 deeper algebraic equations, and, and I'm not seeing the real world application for me. I'm very hands on. It was a hard sell. And then you have a lot of kids now that have the standardized testing. That it's not really about their growth. It's more about justifying a school's budget, which I think is very sad. And what about that lens? Actually, the last conversation I had with my mom, she was saying they're getting rid of standardized testing. So they're getting rid of SATs and ACTs and maybe it's for that reason. But I think like there's a lot of people who say I'm more of a hands-on learner. I'm more of a visual learner. I think that's actually a universal universal thing. I think people learn better hands-on, like in real world application uh, they talked a lot about this when I went through fire academies, like you can read all the books you want, but you got to get out there and get the experience. That's how you're going to really learn. And I agree with that. Um, so I already forgot the original question, but um, yeah, I think the most important thing you can do for learning is to learn through action uh, in person. And then there's always, I know, books and reading, and that'll help supplement your your knowledge and decision making. But experience is the best. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't a question; it was more of an observation. So you didn't forget anything. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that's obviously the academic side. You ended mm-hmm. up playing volleyball at a very, very high level. Walk me through, you know, yourself and Samantha's kind of journey into sports and how you found that particular one. Okay. So I, I grew up playing a ton of different sports. Uh, my first was gymnastics. I started that around the age of two. And I think foundationally, that's a great sport for every kid uh, to learn. It just teaches you 
your own body, how to move it, how to uh, build flexibility, balance, coordination, everything. And then started playing basketball around the age of five. Uh, my dad played basketball and football and decathlon. And I knew that's a sport. That's a sport he wanted us to, to learn. And he, I remember he coached us a lot um, on our younger teams. And around the age of 10 was when volleyball was introduced. We did a lot of dancing as well, like hula dancing, tap dance. Um, but started playing volleyball at 10. Um, and then through junior high and high school, we were kind of, th- we were basically three sport athletes. So basketball, track and field and volleyball and track and field. We were mostly field events, um, all the jumping, high jump, triple jump, long jump, and then discus and shot put were my strengths. Um, so I was a very explosive athlete and long and lean, but, uh, my dad taught me how to throw a discus and I got pretty good at it. I, I actually held my high school's discus record for a while. Um, um, but around the age, I think 15 years old, I got pulled up to the, we were doing club volleyball by this time. And I got pulled up to the 18 year old club team and it was kind of terrifying. I was surrounded by all these girls who were way older than me. Um, but I realized uh, just how talented I was in this sport and the potential that it held for me. And I got a lot of exposure to college recruiters early on uh, and it just blew up from there, um, which was really exciting. I had a lot of different opportunities and offers to go to colleges all over the U S but I knew Stanford Stanford, I just heard of, um, it was kind of like a distant, like dream school. Um, I always heard people talk about it in reverence, uh, uh, it had such high academic standards and the athletics there were amazing. Um, a lot of national championships. And I remember thinking, wow, that would be the coolest school to go to. And it sort of just became my number one dream school. Uh, and I remember calling the Stanford coaches. We had to reach out to them first, um, instead of them contacting us and letting them know that I was interested and things just started rolling from there. And I realized at a certain point that it was very real and very much happening. And I was going to get to go there, uh, which was the coolest uh, experience to see the things just manifest into reality. Um, yeah. Uh, my senior year, we won uh, state uh, with my high school volleyball team. I think that was the peak of those Pueblos high schools volleyball program. Uh, we had a, f- a phenomenal team. It was really fun. And then I went to Stanford, started playing there. I mean, so, to, to go state in California is, is more impressive than being, I don't know, the, the Alaska state champions in volleyball, I'm assuming. 
<laughs> yes, it was very competitive. Actually, a fun story. Um, right before the championship match, we would have dance parties to just get fired up. And I decided it was a brilliant idea to do the worm on cement. And I smacked my chin into the ground and stood up and it, I hit the ground pretty hard. So I was a little dizzy and I like wiped my chin and saw blood. And I turned to my coach and tilted my head back and said, Hey, did I cut my chin open? And his face just went like white. <laughs> and I had totally split the bottom of my chin open right before the final match was about to start. So they put butterfly band-aids and kind of like, I had this huge band-aid covering the bottom half of my face and then we went and crushed it. One. Uh, then I got stitches afterwards. So. So what about, you know, when you hear siblings, especially twin siblings, you know, there can be that rivalry. I mean, they're, they're, I know they're not twins, but the Williams sisters, for example. What was that like with Samantha? You were both excellent at the same sport. What was the the the, the friendly comp competition element as you were growing up? I think it was... It was sort of like having a, well, first of all, it was great because he always had a training partner. So we could go out and shoot hoops in the front yard. We could go uh, pepper with the volleyball in the backyard. Um, and then it was like having a mirror uh, of yourself. So anytime she excelled at something or demonstrated that she could uh, do something really well. I was like, Oh, well maybe I can do that too. So it just kind of kept, uh, stepping up and stepping up the, I don't know, performance markers for us. And it was fun, but it was also challenging at times. Um, I remember feeling like we were compared and that's hard. Uh, just, uh, we were also per kind of perfectionists. So I think we were hard on ourselves. I still uh, sometimes struggle with that. I'm just holding myself to really high standards. Um, but it definitely um, created a competitive drive for both of us. And I think is a big part of the reason why we excelled in so many arenas. Um, just having that built-in built-in support system and buddy, but built-in competitor as well. That's fun. So what about from a career aspiration point of view? When you were in the high school age, obviously you were very good at the sport and it was going to take you to college. Did, were you dreaming of any careers at the time as well, either of you? Um, we were both in the engineering academy at my high school. So I... I remember going to Stanford thinking maybe I'll be an engineer, uh, but I wasn't really, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for the longest time. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually, because some people like they know what they're going to be when they're five years old and uh, it's just set in stone. They know their path. I don't think I knew, I knew, I knew ath athletics was going to be a part of my career. I was just super active. I love moving. I love competing and performing, I think is really fun for me in front, like the aspect of putting everything you've been working on 
on the line in this moment in front of an audience and you just have to do it or die. That's like exhilarating for me. Um, but I wasn't even, I wasn't sure of what I wanted to be. I just knew I had the engineering Academy, um, under my belt. So I went to Stanford and took math 51 and decided that engineering was not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I did the same on the road to medicine. (laughs) Yeah. I was just like, nope, this is not it. Um, and then I just took, I took, I've always been very artistic as well. So I almost minored in art at Stanford. I was taking painting one, sculpture, film photography, uh, literature courses. I just loved um, self-expression in so many different mediums. Uh, And then I've always been really into performance and the human body. And they actually have a, a major called human biology, which I don't think a lot of universities offer. Uh, which is the pre-med route. And once I dove into that, I realized that that was what I wanted to do. It was really interesting for me. We covered everything from human evolution, exercise physiology, metabolism, psychology, um, just basically everything relating to the the human body and experience. Uh Even then, I don't think I was certain I wanted to be a doctor, though. I just knew that that's what I liked studying. So uh, that's what I majored in, human biology. And my concentration was human performance. Um, But my senior year, I started training with the national team uh, for indoor volleyball. And before I graduated, I also had an offer to go play professionally overseas. So that kind of lined up before I even graduated. And I knew that I was going to start a professional volleyball career. When you look back now, um, so many of the people that come on the show, especially people that got to the point, and obviously they were still with us, so they were able to tell the story, but they were there, you know, they planned their own suicide. And, you know, two of them actually did the attempt, just thank God they survived. Um, there so often are elements, you know, way, way early in, in childhood that contributed to it. In 2012 is obviously when you lost Samantha, but now with the 2023 lens, you know, the conversation around mental health is completely different 10 short years later. When you look back, you know, are you able to identify any of the struggles or, or things that she was going through that led to, led to her taking her own life? Yes. Um, it's been hard to look back and with different perspective as I continue to grow and evolve in my understanding of life um, evolves as well. But I think high school was a challenging time for us. Uh, There were a lot of different pressures. We were in club volleyball still in high high school volleyball, high school track, basketball. So we had all these sports and practices we had to run around to. And then the engineering academy, um, we basically, we would be at school all day. Then we'd be in the engineering academy uh, working on, we, we built robots. So we'd be building this robot um, during the after school hours. 
then we'd run to track practice. Then we'd go back to the engineering academy rooms and work until like 7 p.m. Then we'd go to club volleyball practice. Then we'd go home and do our homework and go to sleep. And it was just a lot um, for 16, 17-year-olds. And I think uh, we there were some um, unhealthy habits developed or constructs, I think, developed around food because that was one something that could be controlled. Um, when we did go to Stanford, I was a starter on the volleyball team uh, my freshman year, and she wasn't a starter in the starting lineup for playing. And I think that was hard for her again, coming back to the comparison of being a twin and just uh, the standards we held ourselves to. I think that was a mental struggle for sure. Um, And you could see she continued to struggle a little bit with eating. um, So she was too lean at times. And that's just kind of like a physical cry for help all the times when you see, um, physical manifestations, I think of, of mental struggle. Um, the coaches saw it, my parents saw it and we did get like, start taking the steps for help. Um, so she was seeing a therapist and, um, realize we realized that she, or she was diagnosed with some depression. So they put her on medication for that. So all this was, uh, known, I guess that she was struggling and we were taking the right steps. Um, I, it was hard for me because I don't think I was equipped, um, with the understanding or the skills to really know what to do for my sister at that time, um, other than just be a sister, I don't know, hang out with her, do all the normal things. But I didn't have a lot of conversations with her about um, eating disorder or depression. I know my mom did a lot more because, um, there has been some other mental health struggles and on her side of the family. Uh, so that's hard because if I could talk to her now, I would know exactly what to say. Um, but then back then I didn't, um, there was, yeah. She was just going through a hard time in school. There were some other um, manifestations or, I don't know, things that popped up that were definitely signs of struggle. Um, she went off her medication and that was the one it, one of the worst things you can do if you are on antidepressants. I'm kind of, a, I, first of all, I'm against antidepressants depressants unless you really need them. Um, but I think that's a whole nother topic, but 
she went off the antidepressants without telling anyone. And, uh, that's just very un- unsafe if you are on them for a while. So, um, that's when she ended up taking her own life. And I was the one who found her. I was getting an MRI of my knee. Well, actually I had spent the day with her at a coffee shop and then I had to get an MRI of my knee and I was going back to my place to study some more, but I just felt like stopping by her apartment and seeing if she was there and wanted to study. Uh, I don't know. I just had this intuition or I know gut feeling to go stop by and uh, it was traumatizing for sure. But I ended up having to initiate the uh, first responder response and get other students to try to help me um, resuscitate. Uh, And I think that did influence part of my decision to become a first responder. Um, Just the feeling of helplessness in that moment. Um, But it was definitely not something we saw coming. Um, She didn't talk about how seriously um, how seriously she was struggling in that moment. Um, I just don't think she had the tools and I think she was embarrassed um, about the struggle. So it was, it was hard because I was with her um, pretty much all day and I didn't know any, any of that. Well, I mean, thank you for for sharing that. I mean, these are the uncomfortable stories that people need to hear because it might be someone listening now that, you know, looks at the person that they love and they're exhibiting similar, you know, issues. And I say 10 short years for a reason. 10 short years ago, we were all oblivious. None of us knew how to have this conversation if we weren't actually in the mental health profession. You know, none of us really knew how to understand the signs, especially when you're 19 years old. But then, you know, when you've listed all these different um, layers, everyone has their own perfect storm to get to where they did. It's not one thing. But like you said, I mean, you've got the stress, you've got the the fear. I've had um, Emma Benoit on the show, who was a very popular cheerleader in high school. But then there was some bullying as well. But it was the fear of, you know, these children are in school for, you know, what is it? If they start in kindergarten, like, 15 years of their life and then you're like and then we give you a piece of paper and then you got to go out and get a job and a house you know so like you said if you know what you're doing when you're five then you're already registered for fire academy or the military or law school you've got your path marked out but there's other people that that don't you know and then you know you add the the high workload maybe the sleep deprivation if you're you know not able to sleep because of the stress and eating disorders the psych meds the side effects of the psych meds the cold turkey of the psych meds um you know there's there's all these elements and then the weight of gold documentary you know the the stress of being an elite athlete and then even the the twin element why that's what I, I was sorry the stress i think the stress of Stanford being an elite athlete, a lot of that is not talked about a lot, but, um, there's this fear of failure. I think, uh, that starts to arise in a lot of, uh, 
athletes or students of that caliber. And they just feel like if they don't perform to a certain standard, they're letting people down. And that creates a very unhealthy mental space. Um, and yeah, mostly they're, they're just afraid of letting people down. Um, yeah. Well, the identity piece as well, if you, since you were a small child, have been pegged as this elite athlete and whatever happens, your body changes shape, you know, you just, you hit your glass ceiling and you are now in your late teens, someone's told you you're not going to be the best volleyball player. And, you know, that's a struggle in itself because all of us have an identity. And if that's pulled from you and you've been invested, you know, whether it's other people, whether it's yourself into this is going to be my future and then it's changed for whatever reason, mentally that in itself can be crippling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have twin brothers and sisters. And they're not my twins. They're, they're both younger and they're not identical twins as a boy and a girl. But I've watched that, that perceived inadequacy for lack of a better word from my younger brother how he viewed my older sister's quote-unquote success when actually the everyone else on the outside looking in he's equally successful and you know and loved but again it's bad enough with siblings but when it's twins and you've come out at the same time pretty much you know that's another layer and, and it's not anyone's fault but again it's the perception especially like you said if you're identical twins in the same sport that's another layer to this you know you know, saddening perfect storm that leads some people towards that path of depression. Yes. So you lose your sister, you not only lose your sister, but you're there. Talk to me about how you navigate the grief yourself. I mean, we've been talking about Samantha's mental health. What about your journey from there? I mean, you know, I'm assuming up till today. Um, realize that people have very different grieving processes. And it, you can see that within my own family. For me, I remember I was, I saw a therapist and he said that my way of dealing with things was to spit in the face of fear. <laughs> and that's always stuck, stuck with me a little bit, but I just got, I mean, I went through the full range of, uh, the whole grief process, I think there's seven stages, like anger, depression, denial, um, bargaining. I can't remember all of them, but definitely experienced all of those at different points. Um, but I was, I was mad all the time. I didn't, couldn't understand why this would happen. Like if I had to imagine a worst nightmare, I was basically living it now in my whole world and everything I knew to be true. All of it just came crumbling down. So I, I had to question all my constructs and truths. Um, it's really hard when you're born, born with someone coming it coming out of the womb and then they're not there. Like last night, for example, I, um, she was in my dreams. And so every night in my dreams, a lot of the time she's still there doing things with me. Um, just because I think I'm, it's, I'm programmed. Uh, and my brain is so used to having a twin and someone next to me doing the same things 
uh, that will always be a little bit of a part of me. Uh, initially it was very, very hard. Um, I didn't want to be alone. So I, uh, just surrounded myself with friends and my perception of time changed. I felt the need to make the most of every single second of every day. Um, almost this anxiety or urgency. And I still feel it a lot, like pretty much every day. Um, but yeah, there's just no time to be wasted. We never really know when our last day is going to be today. could be my last day. Um, and I didn't want to succumb to the sadness or the loss uh, I wanted to uh, succeed and persevere in spite of it. Um, and I wanted to live the best life for her, um, for both of us, even though she wasn't there anymore. So that inspired me in a lot of ways to keep moving forward. And uh, that year in school was definitely challenging. I didn't have the patience to really sit still in a lot of my classes. The university granted me um, a little bit of time and some freedoms, a little bit of a shorter course load, I think, for the first uh, quarter after that, because I was definitely struggling just focusing on school. Uh, it seemed kind of pointless to me, honestly. Um, I'd be sitting there listening to a lecture and I'm like, why am I, why am I listening to this? And I could be out doing something else. Um, but I got it a little, a little more under control. Uh, finished Stanford as three-time first-team All-American um, and graduated with my degree in four years. I didn't have to do any extra time. Um, since then, I... Uh, I become a lot more independent. Um, part of that, I think, too, was going and living overseas. I was forced to be isolated <laughs> in foreign countries, and that was challenging. Uh, but I grew to really appreciate uh, my own solitude and independence. Um, and I don't feel as much of a need to fill that void that she left. <laughs> um, Yeah, time definitely heals. But I think I am who I am today, uh, largely because of that tragedy and the way I responded to it. Well, you talked about working overseas. I spent 15 months in Japan working as a stuntman in Universal Studios in Osaka. And I know that Japan was one of the countries that you worked in. So talk to me about, the, you know, I guess the highs and the lows of, of the places that you did end up living for months at a time. Mm -hmm. So I lived, my first year I lived in Cannes, France, which is beautiful. It's the French Riviera. And... When I was at Stanford, I never got homesick, but I remember flying to France and this was, I did not expect this, but the first week 
I cried pretty much every single night. Um, I think just the shock of being in a foreign country, realizing I knew no one there. Um, I could speak, I, I studied French, so I could speak some of the language, but still I wasn't fluent enough to understand everything um, or communicate. It got better uh, as the year went on for sure. Uh, but I like didn't know where the grocery store was or how to fill up my car with gas, just all these basic things we take for granted. Um, now it was like living in an entirely on, on like a new planet, just a new world. And it was very uncomfortable. Um, and I had to figure it all out by myself. So that was tough, but I definitely grew so much, um, in those experiences. And, uh, there were other foreigners on my team. So I became close with them, um, explored a lot in my free time. That's where I found a lot of joy. I would just go, I went hiking, um, all around can, I, I would find trails. I, they, they didn't like the club didn't like this, but I would on weekends we had off, I would shoot up into the mountains and go snowboarding um, in the French Alps. <laughs> that was so fun. Um, walk along the beach. There was a ton of yachts with really interesting people. So I met a lot of them and they would invite me on their yachts, um, ate so much good food. So I think the joy of just immersing myself in a new place um, really made the experience uh, fun for me. But the isolation and the novelty of everything is challenging from the start. Uh, and then there was the volleyball too. Um, basically, they're hiring you to to win. And so there's certain pressures, um, to perform and the coaching styles were definitely different. Like my, my first coach in France, um, he was a yeller. That's how he communicated and he was, uh, Chinese. So it was like a Chinese French combination of yelling, which I didn't understand anyway. So I would just stand there and be like, okay. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> it doesn't really hurt me when I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, my next year was Turkey. I loved Turkey. I was in Ankara, which is the government capital. The people there were so nice. Uh, I became really close with a lot of my teammates. Uh, I would go to their homes and have dinners with their families. Um, Ankara was challenging because there was a lot of bombings while I was there. Um, they were kind of, they were at war with the Kurdish and there was some other government issues going on for sure. So it wasn't a safe place to be, but, um, overall my experience was good. Uh, some more really beautiful places, Istanbul, it's gorgeous. Uh, and I went to Cappadocia, which is this place famous for hot air balloons. Um, and I got to go in a hot air balloon at sunrise with all these other hot air balloons rising. Um, it was so pretty. So just these sights and experiences that 
most people only get to dream of or look look at pictures of and I got to do it um my third country was Japan which is my favorite uh the people were so welcoming and so nice um and then it's just clean and beautiful and I respected so many aspects of their culture uh just uh, it's different there the way they acknowledge people there's an aspect of respect and courtesy um the work ethic was really fun for me to be a part of because there's um i don't know other teams there's always players who don't want to be there or they're lazy but every single girl showed up for practice and and brought 100 all the time which is the way i like to operate and it was just fun to be surrounded by that too. Um, the food, oh my gosh, the food was so good. Just so fresh. Uh, I wish America was a little bit more like that in some ways. Um, but yeah, that was my favorite country by far. And which um, which city you know, in Japan were you based in? I was in Ishiyama, which is a town just outside of Kyoto. I could hop on in on a train and be in Kyoto in like 20 minutes. Kyoto's gorgeous because you go there and you know there's still geisha walking around and it just looks like a an old samurai movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a lot of, oh, so much exploring when I was in Japan. That was so fun. Um, did you go to Nara as well? It's the one that has the deers and the monkey, or deers, deer and the monkeys that are going around, but it's it's near Kyoto, I think, kind of between Kyoto and Osaka. I went to this place famous for monkeys. It, there was also a bamboo forest. That might be, I think that's Nara, I think. Okay. I think it is too. Um, and then my last country I went to was China. That was the most challenging for sure. I lived in Beijing and the air pollution was hard for me because you just walk outside and you can see it and smell it. Um, everything was always coated in like a layer of dirt. Uh, the food wasn't well regulated. There were a lot of, it was challenging. I felt like my health was deteriorating while I was there. Uh, but I mean, the coaches and te my teammates were great. Um, Communication was hard, both in Japan and China. I had translators because they they didn't know any English. Um, in Turkey, I learned some Turkish, and the girls spoke some English. The same thing in France. So, but in those few countries, uh, I had to have translators, and communication was hard. Um, Maybe that's what your Chinese French coach was shouting. It was like, "God, the air's so clean, and the food's amazing." He wasn't shouting yeah, that you at all. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, one of the challenging things when you don't understand a language, you just feel isolated or left out all the time. So like I could be hanging out with my team and they'd be talking and you just don't know what they're talking about or any kind of jokes they're making. You just kind of feel on the outside. Uh, so that's definitely one of the harder parts, um, of being a foreigner on a professional team. 
Now, on on the loneliness point of view, because you you left your tribe, your you know the team that you train with for the longest time. You find yourself in France. You immerse yourself in that culture. You learn the language. So now you can forge another tribe. When you go to China, though, you you know culturally, there's a lot of things that you don't feel like you're a part of. And again, the communication thing is is a big element. Did you find yourself loneliest when you were back in China? Um. There's always an element of loneliness. I don't know if I was my loneliest in China. Uh, I still had some friends and foreigners uh, I could relate to. Um, but a large part of my time overseas was alone. I was alone in my apartment every day. Um, yeah, it just became something... Uh, I got more comfortable with over time, but I didn't like it. I'd rather, I would so much rather be in the United States, uh, closer to family and friends. So you did those four countries. What made you return to the States after that? Uh, so during the summers, I was with the indoor national team. I was, I would be overseas for nine months of the year. It's usually like August, or September through May, they have, we don't have a professional league in the U S for some reason. So we all have to go overseas, which is why I was signing contracts with these teams. And then we all come back and we do the summer with the national team and go do all these different competitions, world championships, Pan Am cup, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I played China, I came back and I had, a couple weeks before I started up with the national team and I went and visited my brother in Hawaii. He was going to school there and I was out surfing and it was just kind of a freak accident, but I went to, I finished riding wave and went to push off the board and the water pushed up back into the board at the same time I was pushing off my left foot and my knee just turned. Uh, and I felt a pop and immediately I was laying on the board and I was just like, no, 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 no. I thought I tore my ACL, uh, for sure. And I started paddling into shore and I was bending and straightening my knee, trying to see if I could feel anything and it didn't feel right. Um, something was off. So paddled in and the second I stood up, I just had excruciating pain. I couldn't bear any weight on that knee. And I started bawling <laughs> and cause all my, I was in a good position that summer to, uh, compete and earn a solid spot with the national team. You kind of have to serve your time and there's veterans who are on the team. And I, I had been serving my time and that summer was basically my opportunity to get my foot in the door and earn a, earn my spot for sure. Um, especially coming into the Olympics. Uh, so I just saw all of that, uh, going down the drain, but I went, uh, I remember crutching into the gym and it was really challenging to see my coach. He was super supportive though. Uh, it was cart cry. A lot of people know know that name. I do from the beach volleyball scene. Yeah, Karsh Cry. And 
his, I remember his response um, was that basically he, he wants us to go live life and do fun things. And he was not upset at me for surfing um, and that things happen. So uh, I rehabbed there for the rest of the summer. Um, I ended up tearing my AC, my MCL, your medial collateral ligament, which is a lot better than tearing your ACL. Um, it was a second degree tear, but I didn't need surgery. So it was basically hanging on by a thread, but you have decent blood flow to your MCL. So uh, it can heal itself, I guess. Uh, took a long time though um, to rehab and get back to play and... I wasn't healthy enough to sign another contract to go overseas when that time came. So I ended up staying, I was renting an apartment in Hermosa beach and I ended up staying there. Um, and now I had these nine months that I would normally be overseas and I wasn't, and I was just sitting there not knowing what to do. That's basically the beach volleyball Mecca of the world, Hermosa beach and Manhattan beach, that whole area. So I was like, all right, I'll play beach volleyball. I'll just like continue honing my skills and it'll be great. Um, but I ended up getting really good, really fast. And, uh, some opportunities came my way and I got asked to try to go to the Olympics by a veteran player on the beach. Um, up to that point, I was trying to go to the Olympics with the indoor national team. Now I basically had the decision, all right, do I continue on this path trying to go to the Olympics for the indoor national team, or do I make a detour and try to get the Olympics on the beach? It was a really hard decision, but it was pretty cool to be in that spot. Um, and I ended up deciding to go at the beach. So started playing beach volleyball. Um, I was two years in my first year was, uh, it was basically getting baptized by fire. I was just like thrown into the heat of competition and it was definitely challenging because I don't think I had built a strong enough beach volleyball foundation yet. Um, I relied a lot on my athleticism, which is what a lot of coaches told me to do. And that could get me so far, but you really have to, they're different games indoor volleyball and beach volleyball. And you really have to learn the intricacies of beach volleyball to win at the highest level. Um, so first year was, was tough, learned a lot. Second year, I started working with, um, Anna Collier, who was the USC women's beach volleyball coach up to that point. She had just retired. And I remember, calling her up and asking her if she would coach me because I knew I needed someone. Um, and she said, yes. So I started working with her and she changed my whole game. Um, I started to get good really fast and I was in a great position. I actually was practicing with April Ross, who, um, was an Olympian at that point, um, a lot of, I was, uh, getting the opportunity to practice and train with a lot of the elite players and, uh, then COVID hit <laughs> and ruined everything. So 
Um, they, yeah, it basically ruined sports, uh, but they took down all the nets, all the courts. Uh, volleyball was banned. <laughs> um, competitions were canceled and it was really challenging. Uh, I came back to Santa Barbara because if I was going to quarantine, I might as well quarantine with my family. All of us were here and I didn't really know what to do. I was trying to like continue training, stay in shape. Um, I would pepper against the wall in my backyard to try to maintain touch, but I didn't know when the quarantine was going to be over, when sports would come back. It was just this big question mark and it made it really hard to know what to do on a daily basis too. I think it was the same for everyone. Um, So I remember doing a lot of introspection and asking myself some tough questions. I'm big on journaling. I write a lot. Um, And I was doing a lot of writing then too. Uh, And firefighting was a career I'd been thinking about for some time. I think the first, first time I remember saying out loud that it was something I wanted to do was in college. I remember telling some of my teammates I think I want to be a firefighter. And at first they looked at me weird and they're like, why? And then they were like, wait, actually you would be really good at that. Cause I just had kind of this crazy personality. Um, and they could see me running into fires. So, <laughs> uh, it maintained, I know my interest in it, uh, continued I guess, even though I was playing professional volleyball and I went to a recruitment seminar for a, uh, LA city that they were holding one day after a training with a national team. I, there was a recruitment orientation at a college. So I just went there and I remember walking out after learning more about what the job actually entails. And I was just like, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, So I got my EMT license. Uh, Once I started playing beach volleyball, I I actually had an off season beforehand with indoor. I didn't have any kind of off season. So I had an off season and I was like, I'll I'll get my EMT license. Um, Really enjoyed it. Actually, emergency medicine, emergency medicine is really uh, fun for me. And I could easily apply. I liked how I could apply my degree and everything I learned um, with human biology at Stanford because I can apply it to myself with my own performance and sports, but now I could actually put it to practical use in another field. Um, and then, so I got my MT, then the pandemic hit and I reached a point where I made the decision to become a firefighter. Uh, it was hard because I knew I was going to have to step away from volleyball and I wasn't going to be able to train or compete like I'd been used to for years. Um, but it was a pivot and a risk, I guess, that I was willing to make. Um, I could also make tangible progress there. Even when uh, everything with volleyball was shut down, I could immediately start taking the steps to become a firefighter. And 
again, I, I don't like wasting time. I feel the urgency to make the most of every second. So I'm like, if I can't do this here, I'm going to start, start this, see where it takes me. So I took four online fire science and technology courses that were prerequisites for a private fire academy, El Camino Fire Academy, and completed those. It was actually a course over, it was a course overload and I had to get it approved by El Camino College. And I remember just sending them my trans, my Stanford transcript and they were like, okay, you can. You <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> that's kind of the, the game changer, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I got them all done fast and then started the fire Academy and they were still holding fire academies even during quarantine. What was that? What was that like? Because I'm in Florida. So we, we were very fortunate. They took it seriously, but then they slowly started to open the faucet, you know, bit by bit and reassess. Obviously LA or excuse me, California as a state, you guys were, you know, it was a lot more stringent for a lot longer. So what was a fire academy like during COVID? That must have been quite a unique experience. It was hard. Um, we had to wear masks the whole time. And basically, I mean, it's already hard enough to breathe when you're in turnouts, running up flights of stairs, doing all the things we had to do, uh, dragging hose. Um, but now we had to do it with masks on our face that were basically suffocating us. Um, so you're dragging hose and moving ladders outside, but you're being asked to wear a mask. But we're being asked to wear a mask. Okay. And I just want to clarify. It wasn't our academy instructors and so many people knew it was kind of ridiculous, but it wasn't their decision to make. It was policy. If we wanted the academy to to run, we had to follow the rules. Um, there are times where I remember we would pull our masks down and they would remind us constantly, like, you need to keep your mask up. You need to keep your mask up. But they, I don't know would let us have them down sometimes <laughs> just so we could breathe. Uh, a lot of hand sanitization. So every morning when we came in, we would have to sanitize our hands. There was just like bottles of sanitizer everywhere. Um, if you felt sick, you had to, uh, I don't know, get your temperature taken, go get COVID tested. If you did get COVID or come up COVID positive, you, uh, would have to let the main instructor know they would tell the class and then um, obviously miss some days. There were a few people who uh, might have had COVID, but there was never a big breakout in our academy, which is actually really fortunate because uh, there's typically huge outbreaks when we're in that kind of proximity together. Um, we also burned our academy down within the first week. So <laughs> yeah, that created a an, an second layer of adversity, but um, linseed oil on rags, a lot of people don't know this, uh, can create spontaneous combustion. So we were learning how to maintain tools and for wood handles of axes, you want to use linseed oil on them to finish it. And there is a pile of dirty rags, pile of clean rags. I think some, some student accidentally put 
a used rag in the clean pile. Um, and then they were put in the at bay. And later that evening, our at bay was on fire. Um, there was an inspector who came and that's what he said. He, he said uh, spontaneous combustion of some rags, but I don't know. There are other theories. Our main instructor thought it might've been um, electrical. Anyways, um, all of our equipment was kind of destroyed. Uh, so there was a big question of if we would be able to continue the academy. And I was devastated um, because I'd worked so hard to get to this point. Like I took the, the, the course overload. I want, I, this is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. Um, and I wanted to get this Academy done. Um, so that was challenging to know that it might not be happening, but a bunch of, uh, local fire departments donated equipment, um, old breathing apparatus, uh, some engines cause our engines were pretty damaged hose ladders, basically everything we needed. And we were able to continue. Uh, but we had no, we had no bathrooms or structures. So our Academy was basically outdoors, um, in the winter and it was freezing at times and we had porter potties. It was rugged for sure, but that's part of the training anyway. So Yeah. <laughs> Now, one thing I didn't ask you, you know, we're going to get, obviously get into the strength and conditioning side and, you know, the obstacle racing, some of the other things that you've done as well. You you were training for this one sport. Um, now you're obviously in the fire service. What about your strength and conditioning side? Because, you know, you've ended up being a very well-rounded athlete, whereas, you know, volleyball, like you said, very short, explosive movements. I mean, there's a, definitely a cardio element, but it's a sport-specific training. We Have you always had this kind of... Bro- more broad general strength and conditioning program or did that come later on? Yeah. So I've always been uh, just interested in being an athlete overall. And I've trained in more avenues and facets than I think the typical volleyball player does for sure. And up to that point, um, I'd gotten into CrossFit a little bit, trail running, but once the pandemic hit and I decided to make this uh, pivot into firefighting, I really got into uh, the cross training and um, I knew what I had to do. I, I started running a lot more, um, a lot more CrossFit. CrossFit's a pretty good way to prepare uh, the energy systems for your body. Um functional training. There was some, uh, friends I had who were also in the process of becoming firefighters and we would put together workouts, uh, which would include like sledgehammers on tires, dragging hose, uh, hill sprints, um, sandbag carries, all kinds of, uh, functional fitness that would suit the career. So I changed the way I was training for sure. But I think up to that point anyways, uh, I just enjoyed training across the spectrum. So I was already in, in really good shape. Um, and now 
with my focus on firefighting, uh, I was able to lean into that even more and I'm competitive. So if the physical part of firefighting was super appealing to me, um, PT was really fun every day. I, I was basically, it was me and, uh, 48 guys and it was just one big competition. So <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was definitely physically prepared once I got into Academy. Um, I think the more challenging part for me was just learning the culture of the fire service, uh, especially the paramilitary aspects. Um, I'd been used to speaking my mind and standing information, um, agreeing to things that aren't always reasonable or make sense <laughs> was hard for me <laughs> just doing what you're told. Um, but I did Excel. I finished as top recruit, um, in that fire Academy as El Camino class one by five. And then I became a ambulance operator for Torrance Fire Department, but that was only for a few months. I hadn't worked as an EMT officially, so I kind of wanted to get a little bit of experience there and also do shift work. Uh, so we actually worked 48 hour shifts and we slept in the fire station and worked with the other firefighters, which was a really good experience. Uh, we got rocked. 48 hours straight? 48 hours. And is Torrance still the, does it still have the same high up tempo, um, you know, violence that it, it's, it used to have? And I think of Torrance, I think in like the 80s, a lot of gang activity there. Is that still the case or has it shifted from that? It's shifted a little bit. Um, there's still, it's on the cusp of like central LA-ish area. Like once you get into Hawthorne and those other areas, it's definitely uh, more questionable. There's a lot more crime and violence. Uh, Torrance is kind of a mix now. Um, but we were the first ambulance operator class. And we had three ambulances um, for six stations. And we just got rocked. It was 48 hours of no sleep literally um they had to issue like a notice to let the ambulance operators take naps because that's kind of against fire culture especially as we were considered uh um sort of like probationary members so you don't really get those kinds of uh freedoms i don't know yeah it's, you don't it's, it's frowned upon for a new person to be oh. in, taking a nap Taking a nap. Yeah, yeah. But we were so sleep deprived that they were like, you need to let them take naps. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I got a lot of experience there, even though it was a couple months. And then I got hired by LA City Fire Department, which was my top choice. Um, I think LA City is uh, known as being one of the top fire departments in the nation, um, in terms of standards, procedures, and the 
amount of call volume. <laughs> it's pretty insane. Um, but the, the variety of calls too, and the kind of experience you gain is, uh, unparalleled. I think there's some other like New York city fire department, Boston, there's some other big city departments that, uh, are right up there too. Um, but LA city was my top choice, got hired by them and I had to go through their fire academy, which was another five months of boot camp. Um, it's definitely a notch up several notches up from my first academy. There were 74 of us to start 54 graduated. Uh, and it was, I mean, you're basically fighting for your job. So you had to take in all this information, digest it and perform. Um, I really enjoyed it. At Fire academies were fun for me again, because I like challenges. I like learning new things and the competitive drive in me just thrived. Um, so I was just like, bring it on. Let's go. Um, finished the top recruit again in that class, which is pretty cool. I, I was the first female in the department, uh, to finish as a top recruit. Um, and then I started working in the field and yeah, that's like my intro into firefighting. So you've got a very unique perspective. I mean, super high level athlete at this point. Um, you know, you now are serving shoulder to shoulder with arguably super high tactical athletes. You know, what we're asked to do, especially in, you know, high cool areas like LA, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people listening, whether they're suburban, urban, you know, the, as you said, you know, the modern fire service, we run constantly. And a lot of times it might be more EMS focused, but then you get the call where it's, you know, 20 story building, the elevators are out and you got to take a hundred pounds of gear, you know, vertically. With the training, the, uh, rest and recovery, the valuable, um, or the conversation about the value of sleep. What was your perspective as you started getting deeper into the world of shift work on the environment to allow an individual to perform at the highest level physically and mentally? Uh, sleep was one of the things that I struggled with the most um, once I started doing shift work. And they talk about it and LA city and many departments are trying to shift away from the old school culture where you just kind of tough things out, mental health, sleep deprivation, unhealthy eating habits, all of that, um, used to kind of be the norm and you just didn't talk about it. You just swallowed it, uh, which leads or has led to a lot of cancers, a lot of chronic illnesses, a lot of mental health issues. So that's being acknowledged and talked about a lot more. And uh, with LA City, there was uh, pushes to have more reasonable mentalities, I guess, surrounding sleep. But it's, it's hard because you're 
you're a firefighter and you're there to do your job. And if you get five calls at night and you don't get any sleep, that's just the way it is. And with that department in the typical call volume, you're not going to be getting a lot of sleep. That's what you signed up for. So it was just, just hard to swallow at times. Um, that that's what I was willingly doing was basically sacrificing my health. Um, even though I was getting a great paycheck and getting to do a lot of the other things I loved, I questioned, is this worth it? Um, and I kept questioning it and I had a lot of great conversations with my captains and the people I worked with, um, about, uh, the things I, I was questioning and, um, I loved all of them. I got to work with so many great, uh, crew members who I really respected and they took the time to teach me a lot. Um, but it was hard even just looking at them and knowing a lot of them have families to support. And I don't, I'm not married. I don't have kids or anything yet. And I can only imagine how hard it was to work that 24 hour shift, get no sleep, go back home, have to engage with your one-year-old and three-year-old kids and your, and your wife or husband or whoever. Um, and then you're getting ready to go back on shift and you could just see like, sometimes they were zombies, just not there. Um, you're only functioning as a small percentage of what you're really capable of as a human being. Um, a big part of that is sleep deprivation. So uh, it was tough. Um, there, I would have to work. We worked, uh, the Kelly schedule. So 24 hour shift, then you have 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, and then four days off. And, um, we were also in a hard time, of uh, low staffing. So we would get recalled or force hired a lot and working a 48 or a 72 would just wreck me. Like as it should not I would sleeping be for two or three days straight. I would be delirious by the end. Um, and I hated that. Uh, just I, that kind of sleep deprivation, I would feel, I would get nauseous. I couldn't think straight. It was scary at times too, because then you're responding to these calls and you're expected to be at your best and perform and solve everyone's problems. Um, but you're like, I feel like I should be on the gurney, not you. Like I'm <laughs> sick. <laughs> I haven't slept for two days straight. You have toe pain. <laughs> I should be on the gurney. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard. Um, working the normal schedule, I would, I would work 24 hours. Then I'd get off, go home, immediately sleep. Then I get up, go to the gym, train, study, maybe train again. Training became basically my freedom. Like, uh, we weren't allowed to work out as probationary members. And because you're learning your job, there's a lot of other things, um, to do. And they would take us out training, which was basically, workout. Um, so a lot of, there's a lot of physical stuff going on, but I missed 
just being able to work out and move my body in ways that I choose. (laughs) Um, so that became like my freedom on my off days. Um, were you still playing beach volleyball competitively during this? No. So I, I still wasn't playing. I remember one of my captains, actually, he, I was having a discussion with him and he suggested that I start playing again just for fun. Um, because it's something probation is hard. You're everything is new. It's designed basically to overwhelm you, to overload you. So I would show up on shift and you just get all this information hurled at you. Um, you have to give drills, which are super stressful on equipment procedures. Um, you get calls, you get your first fire, uh, you make a lot of mistakes and you screw up, um, people yell at you and then you learn and then you keep going. So (laughs) it's a lot, a lot of pressure and you're just not going to be good. You're not going to be good at it. Um, at a lot of things. And he suggested, I just start playing volleyball again. Um, because it was something that was familiar to me and it could maybe bring me some joy during, uh, probation, which is inherently difficult. So I started practicing again and he was right. It was really fun. Uh, but realized in the process that I definitely was not done competing. Um, And I felt like my best years competitively were still ahead of me. Did you notice the impact of the shift work on your performance as a sporting athlete? Yes. Uh, That's basically where uh, things got really challenging was when I started to play, train seriously and compete again and continue my shift work. And... I was open about everything with my crew I was working with at the time. They they were actually very supportive of me playing and competing. They think it's the the coolest thing. Um, and just that, I mean, if I have this talent, I got to use it. Uh, but I would go on shifts and it's like a whole nother professional sport, firefighting. So I'd go on shift, do this professional sport, not sleep. Then I'd get off. Uh, try to catch up on sleep and recover, but then I'd be training for volleyball and my other athletic pursuits. And then I would have to go on shift the next day. And it was, it was really hard physically and mentally because I basically had no recovery time. Uh, and it got to the point where I was just at risk of getting injured or, um, I know something bad happening. Um, in either sport or profession, I guess. So, uh, realized that I had to make, make a decision to focus on one and put the other on hold, uh, for the time being. And I only have a small window really to compete for volleyball and in other competitions as a professional athlete whereas firefighting will always be there. So 
I decided to go for volleyball. Um, initially I went for a leave of absence. I, again, I was open. I think my communication, uh, and openness about this whole experience served me really well. Uh, cause I told my captain about everything I was thinking about and experiencing, um, talked to my crew about it. And we decided to try for a leave of absence first. Um, it ended up, it got approved all the way until, um, the end and it was declined. So, uh, then I was put on the spot, basically had to step away from the fire department or start working again right away and give up, uh, volleyball and everything else. Um, which it was so hard because I worked really hard for this career, for this opportunity, um, and I am just very passionate about the fire service and the kind of impact I can make. Again, there were things that, um, definitely did not care for and parts of the health sacrifice that really did not sit well with me. Um, and I think that, uh, partly influenced my decision too, but, uh, I decided to step away and then, um, I can get back into firefighting when, when I'm ready. So this is such an important perspective. And it's funny, when you were talking, I was thinking about Matt Chan, who's been on the show a couple of times now, when he was at the height of his CrossFit career, he was not in the fire service because again, it was the same kind of thing. Now he's managing to juggle the two, but he's not competing anymore. He's coaching and then he's a full-time firefighter. If you want to compete, it's just, uh, you can't be your best in both arenas. So if you want to be healthy and coach others, I think you can do both, but I would have to put volleyball in it. Like I could play volleyball. I just would have to accept that I'm not going to be putting my best self on the court. Well, when you did human biology, you know, we learned, I I did exercise physiology in in college and, uh, you know, you learn about when you process learning, which is when you sleep, you learn that when you rebuild the body after breaking it down and training is when you sleep. And so you get, I had this in my, my career, you know, the, the, the lack of a better word, the slug and the lazy boy saying, ah, oh, it's always the, the fit guys that get hurt. Well, yeah, there's, there's a physiological reason why the men and women that take their job seriously and train on shift and train off shift get hurt because they don't have the time to recover. There's a reason why we struggle to retain medical protocols and, you know, knots because we're not sleeping. That's when your brain processes it. So this is what I find so insane is, you know, you have everyone's favorite sport, sport and athlete. They all understand that. They have nutritionists. They have strength and conditioning coaches. They have, you know, ice baths and recovery and people talking to them about sleep and sleep hygiene. And they recover after each training session. You have... You know, the special operations community, I've had a lot of them on. They have those tools as well, you know, the SEALs and some of those groups. And then you have the fire service where 56 hours a week is your minimum work week because I worked Anaheim for a few years too. And I think we had almost the same schedule as you, but then you have understaffing. So now that 56 becomes an 80 hour work week 
and you ask Drew Brees, hey, are you going to win the Super Bowl if you work 80 hours a week and you don't sleep every you know, third day? It's insanity. And you know, we have to be awake at nighttime. But for me, the industry standard at a minimum should be a 24-72. We need to give these men and women an entire 24-hour period extra to try and get somewhat back to baseline. But we are literally working our men and women into the ground, you know, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And it's just, if you want, if you want the best uh, service, I guess, for the citizens, you need to have uh, first responders who are recovered and, I know in the best state to go and perform. It's just it's mind blowing to me that we're that we accept um, operating in such low levels of capacity as the norm. In in these kinds of emergencies, where you need to be able to think critically on the spot, make split second decisions, and do things that are extremely challenging. I mean, there's adrenaline and things that get going and it, it can kind of act like a bandaid, <laughs> but it's just not healthy and it's not ideal for the first responders or the people we're serving. Um, in terms of the recovery protocols, I think some departments are starting to realize that you need to treat treat firefighters like professional athletes. But um, yeah, that's kind of crazy to me that we're so behind in uh, getting those recovery methods to the people who probably need it the most. Um, it's the, the, I don't know what to say, but if it's like, it might be a funding issue. It might be, again, like the old cultural uh, mentality or standards of just like gutting it out and accepting health sacrifice. But that's that's only going to get you so far. And I think everyone is starting to realize that there needs to be changes and uh, we have to make them fast <laughs> if we want keep up yeah well the the truths that have come become apparent to me and you know again eight nine years ago i was just oblivious as, as the rest of us but we first tell ourselves a lie you know and we allow the public and everyone else politicians to tell us a lie which is the firefighter schedule is amazing they have all these days off so you know one day on two days off for example well a work day is an eight hour day for a civilian with a one hour lunch or whatever it is we work three days on one day off and we don't work you know 10 days a month we actually work 30 days a month if you're looking at a regular eight hour day so we've been telling ourselves a lie and, and then obviously we have that well you know we're going to show up because we have that service in our heart but then even from the financial side well we can't just we can't hire enough people as it is well if you look at what it costs to destroy a firefighter the workman's comp claims, the wrongful, you know, um, lawsuits, the overtime covering vacancies, you know, the, the, it's a shitload of money. If they were just reallocating money into the right things, um, 
into like the roots of these problems instead of trying to cover up the damage of it, we would we would make headway. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So so you have that as well. And then even with the staffing issue, imagine now if a young man or woman was like, I want to be a firefighter and they they research it and it's okay, it's a it's a twenty four seventy two, it's a forty two hour work week, you know, and put the staffing back where it is because you attract people again because it's not a work environment as you said i mean it took you a very short amount of time to go from an an elite accomplished athlete and a human biology major to have this realization like what in the fuck is going on here how are you working these people so you change that now you solve the the understaffing issue because you attract a lot more people because you're showing the new recruits we care enough about you that we're going to create an environment to thrive versus you know you're just a number show up or you're going to be written up you know which i mean i've worked for four different departments so i would argue one of the best in the country and then one of the worst and then you know a couple of great ones in between so you know i've got to see it from a kind of gypsy lens but it is insanity and no other industry works their people like the fire service does and yet we're the ones that people call on their absolute worst day mm-hmm. What, just so out of curiosity, what was your experience at one of the best departments in terms of, was it a whole lot different or did you still have the same struggles in terms of, I don't know, health sacrifice and sleep? So I would put Anaheim on the pedestal just because, you know, again, it was at the front door for the beginning. Like they, we lost 25% of every class back then through attrition, through academy and then probationary year so they set the bar and they didn't budge like if you if you didn't make it then bye-bye you know we'll find someone else but the work week they're horrendously behind still so this is the thing i didn't realize that back then and when i was hired they were to be fair trying to fill all the vacancies that they had and the, the higher class which i think was a couple of years two three years ahead of me those poor guys and girls have been getting their asses handed to them. So now it was our time in the barrel. So as you were saying, moment we hit six months on probation, now we were overtime, you know, um, we were able to do the overtime for them. And it was, you know, like you said, you got 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, that became a 72. So immediately six months on the job, you're working 72s all the time. All, I mean, my basic pay when I got hired was supposed to be 56 a year. I didn't sign up for overtime and I cleared over 100 grand of forced overtime. So, you know, this is the problem. If you lay that out to someone working in a supermarket or, you know, a carpentry organization or you name it, another job and say, yeah, you know, probably going to work 56 hours, but I might tell you you have to stay another 24 how would that work outside, you know? So, but we we have to take a step back and stop focusing on leather helmets and mustaches and smoothbore nozzles and talk about the real things that are killing us. That stuff is great, but those are tools. This this is a fixable um, element, but we have to rise up. We have to get educated and we have to get angry and we have to look at the sporting world, for example, and say, look, this is human performance and this is how far away we are. And I'm actually involved in a kind of research um, blue sky project in November with one of the country's leading research organizations to bring that very comparison to the fire service. Because what I keep getting told is, well, show me the data. And then my thing is, really, you need me to show you research on why a 56-hour week is worse than a 42-hour week. 
the fact that you asked me that tells me I'm listening to the wrong person anyway. So <laughs> go go look in a mirror and come back when you figure it out for yourself. Other people who are working 48, they're what are they doing? Sitting at a desk. Whereas firefighters are, it's extremely physical. You're exerting yourself for 56 hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So talk to me about what's next then. I mean, for, well, actually, let me pull that question back for a second. You are, are heading back into the beach volleyball world. As you said, your strength and conditioning road became more diverse. How did you find yourself in the obstacle racing and some of the other events that you're immersed in now as well? So that's really interesting because actually my training for firefighting served me really well. Um, I got invited to compete in an obstacle course competition last year uh, called Battle Bunker. And uh, one of my friends, Hunter McIntyre, he was helping run it. So he, I went and trained with him one weekend and he said, Hey, I think you would be really good at this kind of competition. So I was like, okay, let's give it a go. Um, went there and it basically, they had three events and the first one was a ruck and a row. Um, and then you sprinted at the end of it. Second one was, it was short. It was a bunch of sandbag work. So sandbag cleans and squats and then running around the perimeter of a field. And then the third was an obstacle course. And it was designed to test all different aspects of fitness, um, but in a functional way. Uh, it is The course was built based off of um, military obstacle courses. So the whole thing is uh, very paramilitary and that appeals to me. Um, but I went and... I was competing against a lot of athletes who train specifically in this hybrid fitness space. That's what they have started calling it is hybrid fitness. Um, and leading up to it, I just did my best doing what I thought I would have to do a lot more running. I ran with a weight vest. Um, uh, but I ended up getting fourth and I won the second event, which was the sandbag strength complex. Um, and just realized I have some real potential in this space. Uh, so I immediately went and did a Hyrox. Uh, Hyrox is very popular in Europe right now, and it's starting to explode in the U.S. Um, basically, it's a total of five miles of running. You run around the perimeter of this arena, and then you go into the center uh, every... 1k i believe like 0.62 miles and you complete work at a station uh there's skier growing machine um burpee broad jumps sled push sled pull so it's all functional fitness stuff again that technically anybody could go do um but went and did one of those and i think i finished third overall um again with not without any training i was more or less just curious i wanted to see what it was about um, and just started, I started, I started to stir up some talk and, um, other people started to realize that, uh, there was some big potential for me in this space. And it was exciting because it was in the beginning stages of everything. Um, 
then this off season, I really, I became very focused on volleyball, decided that, um, this season was something, uh, I wanted to just go all in on. It's also Olympic qualification year. Um, so I wanted to see if that would be a possibility for me. Um, and in the first tournament of the year in April, I hurt my foot and originally I was told I broke it, which was devastating. Uh, but I couldn't, I had to pull out of a tournament in Australia. I had to pull out of all the next beach volleyball tournaments and I wasn't able to jump sprint or do anything in the sand. The instability was the worst thing for it. Um, I was told I could cross train so I could originally like lift weights, um, bike. I did a lot of yoga and one month from that first tournament, I had this opportunity to compete in the Garak games. Uh, the Garak games, we were sent a packing list and we, no other information about what we were going to do was given to us. So it, we just knew it was going to be 48 hours. Um, we were going to be camping because uh, they said no hotel is going to be included. And there was a tent and other items like that included in our packing list um, based off of pre the first one was first go games was last year um, based off of what they did. Then I knew there was probably going to be grappling involved and there was a mouth guard included in the packing list. So I was like, okay, grappling. Um, obviously there's going to be rocking because go Ruck is a company that makes rocks. Um, and other than that, they could test us in any, any kind of way. Um, the cadre is a group of special forces veterans. So I knew they were going to be basically testing us in ways that they, they were tested. Um, and I just got in this pretty intense mental space. I realized the Olympics were off the table for me. Um, it was just hard. Everything I'd been really working on and focusing was now not um, a possibility anymore, but I had this opportunity in front of me and I was like, all right, fine. I'm going to go win the Gorak games. So I just went all in on it and, um, read a book. They sent uh warrior's creed. And it was really good. Um, I trained a lot in any way I could. I, I was only able to run maybe twice leading up to it. Uh, which is kind of mind blowing, but, um, try to do cardio in a lot of other ways. My foot still wasn't fully healed when I went into it. Um, but I was just, I, I was ready to give everything I, I had. Um, I didn't care <laughs> honestly. Um, and I went in and I ended up winning the whole thing and it was basically 48 hours of evolutions. Um, best way I can describe it to people is like Navy SEAL training. Um, the first night, well, the first thing we did was this baseline functional fitness test. Uh, it included a one mile run with a uh, hundred pounds on our back, a hundred pound ruck. Um, 
that was heavy, very heavy. Uh, sandbag burpee test, a push up test, and a farmer carry test. And then, then they took us to the ocean at sunset. We all had rucks on. We got in the water, so we're all wet. Then we rolled in the sand, so we're sand churros. And they tell us the next evolution, we, we need to start running down the beach and we're not going to stop until they tell us to. And it's a race. It ended up being 16 miles and we finished around 1 a.m. in the dark. 16 and mile it, run? 16 mile ruck. Ruck. Okay. And you didn't know how long you were going to be know how long was, That's, that's so a we, lot of miles of, of uh, not knowing. A lot of miles of unknown. Yes. Um, we ran four miles down and then there was a cadre member who told us to turn around. So we turned around and started running back. And I, again, like I was not able to run and train appropriately for, for this. And so for me, I knew there was going to be moments like this where I was just going to have to get it out. And will power my, my way through, but it hurt. It hurt really bad. Um, I was praying that we were going to stop where we started, which would be eight miles, but we got to that midway point and we kept going. And that was really hard. Um, they thought more people were going to quit. There was 12 women and 12 men. Um, only one female quit in that evolution. But I think the cadre thought they were going to lose more. Um, finish that. I wasn't, uh, definitely was not in the front. <laughs> um, I was in the lower half of the rankings, but um, did as well as I could have in that event. Uh, then they took us to a campsite and we set up tents and got some people were able to sleep for a couple hours. I couldn't sleep. Um, woke up the next day and continued with the evolutions. Um, I think my training with fire, I'm used to, I was used to sleep deprivation. I'm used to functioning when you feel like shit. <laughs> so um, that second day was mine and I just crushed um, from the first event on. It was a, the first one was a sandbag or it was like a sand kettlebell um, snatch test. And I think I got the most snatches out of men and women. Um, and then second event was uh, we had to run with sandbags on our shoulders and the weight increased. Um, I think it was like a 60 pound sandbag then an 80 pound sandbag, then a hundred pound sandbag. Um, I'm really good at running with weight. So I ended up getting second in that um, versus competitors who would definitely beat me if it was just a regular run. But when you add weight to the mix, I don't know, I thrive. Um, I've been working a lot more on running specifically uh, and endurance because I realized that after that competition, I started working with a coach and just realized that that's where I can, 
uh, make up a lot of ground in these competitions. That's probably my weakness. Uh, but then there was some shooting events, uh, which was really fun. Um, a dummy drag. There was a knot event where we had to tie They They taught us three knots, uh, bowline, clove hitch in a square knot. You got that all day. I already know how to tie all those knots. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I, it was funny because I was just like, I think this was what I've been training for, for the past five years is how I felt. Um, yeah. Uh, then the last day was uh single elimination from quarterfinals on. And it was, uh, you had to hold a sandbag static hold overhead one-on-one facing off against a competitor, which is definitely in my wheelhouse. And then there was grappling um, and it's not like there's weight classes. So, and I have jujitsu experience. Um, so nobody wanted to be pitted against me, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the last, the final event, it was me and my friend Calypso made it to the finals and, uh, we had to carry a bunch of sandbags on one side of this cargo net up and over the net and drop it on one side. And then once all those sandbags were there, we ran around and we had to get all these, um, sand medicine balls and sandbags from one end of the field across this line. Um, so again, it came down to work capacity and ability to carry weight. Um, and I took it. Uh, so won the girl games, um, and then that just opened up a lot more opportunities in this fitness space. Uh, I started working with a coach who is training me specifically for this stuff. So I don't have to try to guess and make up my own workouts now. Um, and we're doing, uh, we're building my training program a lot more intelligently. So taking a look at like, what are my strengths now? What are my weaknesses? What do I really need to focus on instead of just training randomly across the spectrum all the time? Um, if you want to make adaptations, you have to pinpoint one and periodize your training essentially. Um, and now I'm competing. I, Oh, I set a deck of strong world record. And then I got uh, fifth place in the world for deck a mile. And this weekend I'm doing deck of fit. So there's this race organization called deck of fit that runs these three different races and they have world championships in December. Um, I've qualified for two of them and now I want to qualify for the last one. Uh, There's high rocks, which is another race organization. And then, um, I did like grit games in Texas a couple weeks ago. So different gyms or like the battle bunker, um, they'll run their own hybrid fitness competitions and invite athletes. Uh, they're all different. Um, there's some that definitely will suit certain athletes more. Um, yeah, so it's fun to go compete and 
every time I do, I figure out more about um, myself and my strengths and my weaknesses. Uh, but my mental game is definitely something that serves me well in this space. And I think my training and firefighting built a big part of that. That's amazing. So, I mean, to go from the volleyball to the fire service to the hybrid, you know, um, fitness events now, is there still going to be a window in the future for you to go back into the beach volleyball pursuit of Olympic teams? Or is that kind of closed now with this last injury? Um, so I actually, I've started playing again. Um, I played in the Manhattan Beach AVP this past weekend uh, I was planning on playing the full season, but again, I hurt my foot in the first tournament, which was AVP Miami. And then this ended up being my second tournament of the season, AVP Manhattan. Um, it was nice to be back for sure. Uh, it's just a lot more challenging of a sport to invest in, honestly, because there's so many more pieces that are outside of your control. Uh, with hybrid fitness, it's an individual sport. So I can train, prepare, go out and perform. And ultimately I'm in control. Um, the results come down to me, my performance, my preparation, but with beach volleyball, it's a partner sport and you can do everything to the T, but unless your partner pulls their weight and you gel well together on the court and are able to put all the pieces together, you're not going to be able to uh, beat the best teams and perform at the highest level. So there's also resources you need, finances, coaches. Um, you need to set up practices with other teams. It's a lot more logistics and a lot more uh, coordination and things you have to deal with. Whereas I can like, I can train for a hybrid fitness anywhere. Um, I can go, I can run, I can go lift. Uh, so I don't want to write off volleyball. Um, just at this point, uh, it's a lot more challenging to invest in. And every time I, I have, really invested in it, uh, I don't get much in return. Um, but the second I've redirected my attention to hybrid fitness, uh, it's really easy to gain traction there and get the results uh, I'm looking for. So 2020 Olympics is LA. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to write it off, but we'll see. Brilliant. Well, I, I want to be mindful of your time. We're almost at two hours now. I just want to throw a few closing questions if you've got time. Okay. First one I'd love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I like the way, what is it? Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. That's one that I read um, after my sister's passing and it really spoke to me. Uh, uh, James Clear, he wrote a book on habits. 
I'm trying to remember the name of it. Is it Atomic Habits? Is that his book? Yeah, Atomic Habits. Um, I read that one before getting into the fire service and I loved it. Um, yeah, really makes makes sense. And I think if, if you're trying to make some life changes um, and create new habits, uh, it's a really, I don't know, inspiring read. Um, you, you mentioned Warrior Spirit. Is that Roger Sparks' book? For one of the Warriors Go Rogue Warriors Creed, yeah. yeah. Roger Sparks. I really like that book. Um, I've read a lot of like sport books. Uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I don't really agree with everything with everything he um, preaches, but I think he is very inspirational and there's a lot of good takeaways from his book. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Those are the top one, the ones that are, oh, seven, uh, what is it called? Oh, it's the seven habits of highly effective people by Effect. Stephen. Okay. Brilliant. Stephen Kotler. I think he wrote one on flow state. Brilliant. Now what about movies and or documentaries? Any of those that you love? I like the movie gladiator <laughs> just cause it appeals to me. Um, I'm not, honestly, I don't watch very many movies or television in general. So not really the one to ask, but, uh, I recently watched a documentary called the deepest breath. I just watched that. Amazing. So good. Yeah. My, actually my AO I worked with last, he's, he's the one who suggested it to me. He's like, I really think you would like this documentary. And I started watching it and I was just glued to the screen. My hands were sweating. Um, yeah, it was a really good about free diving. Uh, and it's hard because you want to tell people kind of what it's about, but you can't. It's kind of like um, the alpinist. You just got to say, just trust me, watch this. It will take you on a journey. But if I tell you too much, it's going to take you out of the journey. Yeah. I never really watched or knew much about free diving before watching it. It's just mind blown. <laughs> All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure where people the people know where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? We've talked about all the you know, the the work that you do. What is your down regulation? I've been trying to get better at this actually because I realized that all the time I'm always on, like always thinking about my next move or what I need to do, um, problem solving. And I've been trying to get better at just like turning it off at a certain point during the day. Uh, I think being around other people, um, engaging in social things, it doesn't have to be like, even if I'm just go to dinner with one person or, uh, go play pickleball with my parents, um, play a board game, go on a walk with someone, just anything where I'm um, connecting with someone else, I think uh, helps me decompress. Um, I mean, I, I can always read a book. I can always watch a movie, but I'm still sort of 
on when I'm doing that. I'm like trying to better myself in a way. So yeah, social connection is what works for me. Beautiful. I just came across um, an app. This technology has been around for quite a while, but only in the, the kind of high performance space. And they've just been able to make it work on a smartphone now. I'll send you the link to the episode, but the app is called Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M. And they have, um, uh, I guess we have a lesson, what would you call it? But they have modes where it down-regulates you and you, you can get into that relaxed state a lot quicker, but they also have up-regulation ones you know, prior to an event. But um, it was used by, or is still used by Special Forces and, and NASA and all these high performers. But uh, episode 806 with Jim Poole, I mean, I'm I'm a very hard person to impress, especially when people use the word hack, you know, or a lot of these wearables and that kind of thing. It just I think the body is way more um, intelligent than than a watch can tell you. But this particular thing has been game changing for me, especially, you know, people that are on shift and, you know, have the whether they're still in, whether they've they've left the profession, you know, we have a lot of repairing to do, even if you were in just for, you know, a couple of years. But um the the down regulation on that has been incredible. So I'll send you that when we're done. Yes. I'd love to try it. Brilliant. All right. So then for people listening, where are the best places to learn more about you online and on social media? Uh so I'd say I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at Carly Wopat. And that's pretty much it. I don't really use my other social media platforms. Well, your, your website is amazing. So what is the address for that? Yeah, my website is Um There may be a new website coming soon, but for right now, that's my current website. Brilliant. Well, Carly, I want to say thank you so much. It's, it's like I said, you have a very unique perspective. I've had this, you know, a handful of times on the show. People that function at a very, very high level in the sporting world and then come into the first responder profession. And so, whether they they stay, whether they have a realization and you know want to want to do what you did, which is make the most of of their younger years before they commit to, to you know the the environment that we work in at the moment. Um, but your perspective is is unique, and I think it's very, very important. So I want to thank you so much, not only from the you know the the fire service conversation, but also the vulnerability about you know your sister and that other conversation that needs to happen, whether you're in uniform or not. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, James. It was a pleasure to I don't know talk about all this, and I do enjoy these conversations. So. 